Would you grab your Bibles and turn to John 18, and we'll read our text for this morning. John 18, we're going to be in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews at the end of John 11, where this is, that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. And I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. But when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what if I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Today is Sermon 114 in the Gospel of John. By the time we're finished, we're going to be right at 130 sermons. Um, Once we finish things, we're going to kind of do some review of some really important things, some summary kinds of things um, uh, at the end. Uh, And these today has some really important things for us. So this narrative has some very practical application for us in regard to our faith, in regard to our understanding of who we are, and, and big time in regard to understanding who Christ is. And so as John continues to write about what is about to happen to Jesus in regard to the cross, as we enter into the trials, and as he's writing about that, he lets us see some principal characters that are connected to what is about to happen and take place over the next hours during the night. We are going to be able to see Christ He is calm, he's trusting of his father, he's kind, he's honest and truthful as he speaks with the high priest and when he speaks with Pilate. He doesn't fight anything that is about to happen. He's not angry, he is sinless and he exemplifies exactly who he is. This is the plan of the father for all of this that is about to take place. Then we encounter Caiaphas and also Annas. Annas is Caiaphas' father-in-law. He's also referred to in the text. It's a little confusing unless you really look at it. He's also called the high priest, though his son-in-law is actually that year the high priest. But because he, they kind of interchanged back and forth, 
depending on the year. They're both kind of called high priest, but we'll see that he sent to the actual high priest that year um, was, was um, Caiaphas, but what we're going to see in John 18 today is what takes place with Annas, who is Caiaphas's father-in-law. So if you're confused, it's okay. You, just to know that uh, that's how they utilize this. Now let me talk about Caiaphas just for a moment. He is quick to get angry. He is a religious leader. He is supposed to be a man of God, who we will see today. He's okay with lies being all around him. Totally okay with it. As a matter of fact, he will lead the charge and drive this about lies being propagated about Christ so that they can get rid of Christ. So this is Caiaphas. He is willing to ignore laws, long-standing laws, normal Jewish protocol. He is full of sin and he is a weak man. Spiritually speaking, he is a disqualified man. He should not be in this position. As the high priest, he should have known who the Messiah is. How? By reading the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. And for three years, he has been off and on in this role. He's had a prominent role. He has read the scriptures. He has grown up in the scriptures. As a Pharisee, he would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, which there are many prophecies about the coming of Christ there. And now this one who is the fulfillment of all of this is right before him. And all he wants to do is lie instead of bow his knee at Christ. So we will also see Peter today already revealing what Christ has told him would be true of him. He is hiding in the shadows and easily denying that he knows Jesus. And so there's a compare and contrast that John is writing here that is important for us to see. So John, once again, wants us to see the glory of Christ. He wants us to see the trusting nature of Christ in the Father right up next to the darkness that is in the human heart in Annas and Caiaphas, in Peter's heart, and some of the other characters that are there. Now we are entering into this week and next week the trials of Jesus. There are two aspects of the trials. There's the Jewish trial. There will be three aspects of that. And then there's a Roman trial, more of a civil trial that will happen and take place. So when Jesus is before the Jewish religious authorities, Annas tries to get Jesus to incriminate himself. Then he sends Jesus to Caiaphas, who now brings in false witnesses to speak against Jesus. And then eventually the third aspect, Jesus will stand before the Sanhedrin and they will condemn him to death, which by the way, they were not allowed to do by Jewish law to condemn anyone to death. But when you're guided by lies, look at our culture. When you're guided by lies, you can just ignore laws and just do whatever you want to do. And that is the religious leaders. Now the Roman civil authority and what Jesus will experience on this night, he he will go to Pilate first. Pilate learns, kind of not getting anywhere with Jesus, and so he learns that Jesus is a Galilean, so he sends Jesus to Herod, who's King Herod, over that that region. And Jesus says, listen to this, has nothing to say, says nothing to King Herod. It is a very significant thing when Jesus has nothing to say to you, standing face to face. He speaks not to Herod, doesn't say anything. Herod sends him back to Pilate, And we'll see um, this conversation, significant conversation, in John chapter 19. Pilate finds Jesus innocent. But but because of the fear of the people, he gives in and allows Barabbas to be released. 
and Jesus to be crucified. In every aspect of these trials, six aspects, three Jewish connected to the Jewish religious leaders, three connected to the Roman civil authority, um, all phases full of hypocrisy, full of lies. Just, by the way, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. This is what governments eventually become. They rarely maintain a sense of integrity and rightness. So let's walk through this. I've got four things this morning that I think are very important for us to see. Um, And so let's look at 12 through 14, if you would. Um, Read it again with me, follow along. And I want to talk, first of all, this morning about the false belief that mankind is in charge of things. By the way, mankind is not in charge of anything. And we will see this on this night. Look at 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So let me note here that it's important for us to see. They come. Do you remember what happened last time we were in John? First part of verse 18. They come. A band of soldiers, a band could be up to 600 Roman soldiers. They also bring Jewish soldiers connected to the religious leaders. They come to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus steps out and says, who are you looking for? Well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, I am he. You remember what happened to the soldiers? What happened to everybody? They fell back on the ground. So watch this. They now bind him, thinking that they can control him. When he has just spoken words and knocked them to the ground. Are they really going to be able to bind him with ropes? But notice this. Christ is submitting to the Father's plan and purpose. This was why he came. These things were going to happen and take place. And so they come and they bind Jesus. Thinking that now they can take him wherever they want to take him. They can do whatever they want to do. They can have whatever, any kind of perspective they want to have of him. No doubt they finally feel we have, we're taking care of the Jesus issue that has been a problem for us for three years now. We're going to be able to get rid of him. And now we are in control. They have tried to capture him and kill him several times. If you remember, he just slips away. They've not been able to because the timing is not right. But now the timing is right. The reason that he came and the fullness of mankind's heart toward Jesus is going to be revealed on this night. But the issue is this. I'm thinking that they are in charge. They are not. Listen, they are not in charge of anything on this night. Nothing. This is the purpose of God, that Christ would come. He would, be su- he would suffer, he would die, he would rise. As a matter of fact, for the last six months, Jesus has been telling the twelve over and over and over again, when we go back to Jerusalem, men, this is what's going to happen and take place. I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be arrested, I will be beaten, I will be killed, and I will rise. So he has been affirming this, telling this, over and over. The Father is in charge of this night. I want to remind you and I this morning. Things are not going to get any better in the weeks to come, probably in a number of different areas in regard to the emotion and the response of people in our country, particularly connected to the abortion issue. In the years to come, it may ever increase as well in regard to how we are seen by our culture and the increasing of pressure 
upon us. And in every step of the way, I want to remind us as the people of God this morning, our government, another government, Russia, China, North Korea, a political party, another political party, they are never in charge of anything. Our God is always in charge. And so that speaks to us as we look into the life of Christ here, that though suffering, though rebellion, though lies are directed at Him, all of this is moving along according to God's plan. And so what, what we do is we trust. We trust as man rages. We believe in Him and we, we know that God has great purposes and so we believe that and we embrace that. And so the Father is in charge of this night. It is still the case. There has been no relinquishing of the sovereign control um, of God on this night. And so the long, difficult road that Christ had come to walk, and He is beginning to walk on this night, will lead to outside the city of Jerusalem, where He will declare, it is finished. And by the way, it is finished. Amen? It's finished. And He will declare it in the hours to come. No one else in Jerusalem on this night has a full recognition that the hope of the world would end at the end of the road at Golgotha where Christ will declare those words. So I want to remind you, and I again this morning in this text and in regard to the culture in which we look and what we're hearing and what we will continue to hear and see. They thought they were accomplishing their purposes on this night. But God was accomplishing His purposes on this night. So this gives to you and I a great confidence that God is sovereign, He's in control, and we can trust Him in any and every situation. So again, I just remind us that Jesus has just said, I am He. They have fallen to the ground. They come to Him now. They don't gag His mouth. That's probably what they should have done first is, okay, do something about that mouth because when He spoke, we all fall down, fall, fell down. But they arrest him, they bind him with ropes, and he walks away. Let me also say this, a very practical point for us this morning. So as Jesus is bound and they are leading him away, is he free or is he bound? He's free. Why? He is in the middle of his Father's will. This is why he came. So I, I remind you and I, again, as well, lesson from Jesus here. The world may do something to us. A spouse may do something in anger or a friend or a a boss or some other situation may be done to us. But if we trust and if we walk with Him and and maintain our faith in Him, we're not bound. We are what? We are free. What frees us? The truth. The truth sets us free. And so though they have bound Him... Jesus is not bound and his life is out of control. His life, though very difficult, what is about to happen and take place, he's free. Why? Because this is the ordained will of the Father for him. And so I want you to go back just for a second to John chapter 11. I just want to read this for a moment before we point out a few things about false religious leaders. Hey, it is really hot in here, right? Is it hot in here? It's hot in here. Can Mark Verlander, can you turn it down just for me, please? One degree. It's freezing? Okay. 
I just noticed people fanning all over the room, and I'm starting to sweat. I'm not in Nepal either right now. It was 115 when we preached last Saturday. And so, anyway, okay, just leave it as it is. Y'all, I guess I'm the wimp. I'll go exercise this afternoon or something. All right, John 11, 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, they have no idea that as he speaks this, that it was about salvation. They just, Pilate and his, excuse me, Annas and Caiaphas had a lucrative financial business dealings by being in charge with the temple. Jesus was going to mess all that up. Matter of fact, early in his ministry, he overturned the money changers and messed things up. In his last week of his life, he did it again. And so he has been a problem for them. And so they're thinking about, we just, we just don't want Rome to cause more problems for us to take away our power and our influence among the people. And so that is everything that was connected um, with that. So I want to give three principles now that I think are important for us to see um, even in our day, and we see in the text here. Um, and I want you to go to Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to look at another aspect of the same thing that we are seeing here, where Matthew gives us a little bit better detail. Matthew 26. And I want, to, I want us to see what happens when religious people are filled with hate toward Jesus, when they are in charge, what do they do? What are some aspects um, of their life? So in Matthew chapter 26... Verse 59. I want to read a few things here and, and, and let's see what happens and takes place. Matthew gives us some other detail. So now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Let me give three principles here that I think are important that we see in the text here and that are a danger even today still 
in regard to the church. Here's the first thing that we see about the religious leaders here. They will embrace, these false religious leaders, they will embrace and look for lies to support their position instead of looking for the truth and standing on the truth. And this is exactly what takes place here. Look at 59 again. Now the chief priests and the whole council, everybody else, were seeking false testimony. So look up here. Note this. People steeped in the scripture, people entrusted to be the religious leaders to lead the temple, to guide the people, to shepherd the people, they were seeking not the truth, but they were seeking things that were false. And here's what happens. If religious leaders ever get to the place that it is my view, regardless of what the Scripture has to say, I just have an idea about something. This is how cults come about. This is how other false teaching in the church comes about. Is they have a view about things and it doesn't, regard, it doesn't matter what the truth has to say. The truth is my truth and my view of spiritual things, and this is them. They have a Jesus problem. They, they, they want Jesus gone. And so they have a view of Jesus. They, they have this view. And so instead of seeking the truth, they have established for themselves an idea that they would, would act, are actually putting over the truth, and they seek not the truth, but they seek false testimony. The pursuit of truth is to be the course of our lives. Are we in agreement about that? And so here we have, again, we have those who should have known who the Messiah is. He is standing before them. They have listened to him for three years. They have watched him. They have heard about what he's been doing in the villages. They have heard about the healings. They have been present for some of the healings. And now they're at the place and... And it's not about truth for them. It's about lies. And it's about their view of things. And so they seek untruth to convict Jesus. They seek what's false, not the truth. They were not in the business of the truth and interested in it. And I also want to note what they do here. When they find nothing that they can charge Jesus with, should have been evidence, correct? And Okay, we can't find anything, so this must be the truth. And and I want you to listen to this principle. This is really important for us. Because sometimes Christians in churches, we have a view about things that we think the Bible teaches, but the Bible actually doesn't teach it. And we stand really strongly on it. But when we really examine the Scripture, maybe that principle or that idea is not present and it's not there. And here's what must happen every time That is the case. We don't ask God to change the truth. We change to the truth. And so they find nothing untrue about Jesus. No evidence. Instead of going, gosh, let's go back to the scripture. Let's read about the things that the prophets wrote about him, that he would open the eyes of the blind. He would bring healing. He would cure He would do these things. He would give sight. He would open the ears. People who couldn't walk can walk. Let's go back to the Scripture and examine the Scripture next to Jesus. These men who are committed to the Scripture don't do this. And so here's the danger out there in Christian land today. 
If people are listening to conference leaders, authors, whatever the case may be, bloggers, whatever category you, you want to throw that in, pastors, who don't stand on the Word of God and pull the principles out of the Word of God so that there is a foundation that's there, I would caution all of us to not listen to those people and allow those voices to come into our lives. These are the religious leaders of the whole nation of Israel. And they are seeking what is false, not seeking what is true. And when they, they can't find something, even in lies, to charge Jesus with, they should have made an adjustment. They should have gone, okay, we've got to rethink this. Guys, listen, I, I know we've had issues with them. But listen, his life and his words, they line up with the Old Testament teaching. We, again, I go back to, we must adjust when we are wrong about something in regard to Jesus. The trials were full of so many things that were all ignored. Listen to the things that were ignored on this night, showing that they had no problem with lies and false testimony. They were not allowed to make arrests at nighttime. Um, They were not to have trials at night or on the eve of a Sabbath. Guilty sentences could only be rendered on the day after a trial. They render it on that night. The Sanhedrin, the ruling council, kind of the supreme court of the nation, could only hear and investigate charges. They couldn't instigate charges, and this is what they do on that night. They instigate charges against Jesus. The charges changed, by the way, on the night, um, as it, in the early morning. Originally, Jesus was accused of blasphemy, at the end of the night, here's what will happen. They will, they will charge Jesus um, with claiming to be a king. And so they changed the charges um, against him. Jesus was also not allowed to put forth any kind of defense on his behalf. According to Jewish law, he should have been allowed to be able to do that. And the Sanhedrin ended up pronouncing a death sentence, which under Jewish law, they were not allowed to do. And here's what happens, and we see it in our culture today. When lies and anger dominate the decision makers in a land, then the truth is just always going to be ignored. And and anything is allowed. I know we've talked about it, but I just want to be honest. I, I, I still cannot fathom that adult people who are educated are discussing whether a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. I, I, I find, I can't, I, I can't fathom that we're having this conversation and that there's confusion about this. And again, I, it highlights that nothing is new. And our leaders today in our country are promoting this. And so we as his people know that lies dominate the world because the world lies in the hands of him who is the great liar. And we know that this is going to take place. And so we live by the truth. We stand on the truth. Regardless of what any leader would say. And any kind of affirmation of untruth. We know the truth. Because Jesus is the truth and the scripture is the truth. But we live in a time where anger dominates everything. And the pursuit of False testimony and false information has become the priority, unfortunately, in our culture. 
And we live counterculture as his people. We don't buy into it. Here's the next thing about false leaders. They will speak as if interested in the truth, but they are not interested in the truth. Both political parties over the last several years quote scripture and have quoted it badly. And so we call out any leader that misquotes scripture, any pastor that misquotes scripture, anything that's, that's not correct, we, we call it out and, and we see that, that for us we cannot be, we, we don't act as if we're interested in the truth, but we're not. We are interested in the truth. And so we pursue the truth with all of our hearts. And so the high priest stands up and asks Jesus questions on this night. Are you the son of God? So technically, it's a good question to ask. The problem is they've been mad at him since John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, I think it's verse 11, they knew when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he healed the paralyzed man in John 5 on the Sabbath, that he was, it says there that, that they knew that he was making claims that he was equal to God. They've known for about two and a half years now what Jesus has been saying about himself. What's he been saying about himself over and over? He is God. He's been making this claim. And so for Pilate to come and say, so tell me, do you claim to be the son of God? He knows what Jesus has been claiming. And again, he's getting nowhere with Jesus. And so watch what he does here. This is, this is slick sometimes with leaders. He has no interest in what Jesus has to say, even though he asks a question. But he does know the claims that Jesus has made about himself. And so I think he asked the question now, if Jesus is the Son of God because of this reason... He knows that Jesus is going to affirm the answer. Yes, I am the Son of God. And he's going to use the truth that is connected to what Jesus had been saying and proclaiming to now twist things and to get the people, the other religious leaders, on his side. Here's the third thing that will happen in regard to false leaders. They will attack God's people, the Bible, and seek to get rid of Christ's influence in every kind of way. So 2666 says, what is your judgment? And they answered, well, he deserves death. And then they spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This world that you and I live in has so much anger toward Jesus that they almost just don't know what to do with the anger. And so there's a lashing out at God's people, at Jesus, at the scripture, and the rage in our culture has greatly grown, and I believe it will probably continue to grow um, as our culture continues to aim to silence God's people speaking truth into the culture. But as we finish this and we move on, Man is not in charge. They are not in charge on this night. That's why Jesus can remain calm. Why? Because he knows they're not in charge. He knows that his father is in charge and he can be trusted. 
So they end up ignoring the truth. But we must be the kind of people that do not. I want to briefly share point two, and then we're going to move to point three. I marvel at the majesty and the meekness of Jesus in John chapter 18. This one that they bound with ropes and are leading him away is the one who spoke the world into existence. He is the Almighty One. He's the one who, who the demons just recognized and knew who He was and said, don't cast us out. Death had, no, death had no say to Him. Could not keep Him in the grave. This is the Almighty One. And watch, because He loved the Father and because He loved us, He was willing to, watch, submit Himself to evil men to accomplish their purpose that was actually the Father's purpose that He would be betrayed in this way. He would be mocked in this way and go all the way to the cross. And so the majesty of Jesus is seen in His great trust of the Father as He's arrested on this night. Did He have the power to free Himself? Absolutely He did. But He doesn't. Because His trust is grounded in the majesty and the glory of His Father. He is still the great I Am reigning over the universe as they lead him away to his trials. So the majesty of Jesus is incredible. Secondly, the meekness of Jesus is amazing. Meekness in our culture has been defined as weakness. That's not what meekness means biblically. Uh, Meekness means strength under control. That's what it means. So here's the sovereign God of the universe in a body Trusting his father and allowing himself to be led away. Him taking the steps, heading to his trials and his eventual death. There's a prophetic picture here. The lamb in the Old Testament sacrificial system, that would be the sacrificial lamb, the lamb that would be, if you remember, um, the sins would be um, placed on the lamb and it would be led out of the city It was presented before the high priest. And I want you to notice the prophetic picture here. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is presented before the high priest. And he will do that very thing in the hours to come. One more thing here. Jesus gives them a great example for how they were going to live in the days ahead. They would be before Roman authorities and Jewish authorities, the eleven would, in the years to come. And they would learn from Jesus on this night that you stand on the truth, you speak the truth, you trust the Father regardless of what man may eventually do. Ten of them will be martyred and killed just like their Savior. John is the only one who died of natural causes. So through the years they would learn, and think, I think they would think back on this night, how did he respond? How do we need to respond? And there's great lessons for us as well. If our culture continues to disintegrate and more pressure is put upon us as believers because of our love for Jesus and our stand for the truth, we can learn things for what we need to do here. We stand on the truth. We trust the Father. We know that He's in control, that the world is not in control, governments are not in control, that God is in control of the world. Let's look at the next thing for a moment. And I want to talk about that faith is safer and stronger when we follow close. And this is a lesson from Peter. 
So we don't know who this other um, disciple is that knew the high priest. Um, it's just not specifically known. Many speculate that it's John because John never refers to himself in the God. He, well, he refers to himself indirectly, but doesn't call himself out by name. So it's possible this is John, but ultimately we don't know who this is. But one of the 11 had a relationship with the high priest family. Knew Annas and knew Caiaphas. Knew them in such a way that they could enter into the high priest's house. And so Peter, so one apostle, a little more bold, goes, up, goes in, has a better relationship. Peter follows along, but kind of stays back in the shadows on this night. So I'm going to give a couple of principles about Peter that we can learn um, from, and then we will move on to the last point um, this morning. So as we began to examine Peter here in this moment, what a difference we see between he and Jesus. Jesus stands boldly before his accusers and he sticks to the truth. Peter reveals his cowardice by denying that he knows the Lord and has anything connected with the Lord. So what do we learn from Peter? Here's the first thing we learn from Peter. It's very important for us as well. We must never lose sight of whose we are and who we are. He belonged to Jesus. He had been called out by Jesus to be a follower, to be one of the 12. And yet on this night, it's the last thing that he publicly declares is that he has any kind of attachment with Jesus. He loses sight. Two times in John 18, Jesus says, I am he. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? I am he. Three times on this night, Peter says, I am not he. I am not he who follows him. So don't don't charge me. I'm not one who was following him. So Jesus twice stands boldly, says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Three times Peter says, I'm not he who followed. So let me just say something here. We, you and I, will all fail the Lord at some particular point in time of our lives. Would you agree? We just will. Um, We are not above what Peter does here. We're going to make some mistakes in in a moment of weakness. We'll give in and we will act as if we didn't know him. There is no Christian that has never failed at some point and in some manner. Fortunately, our failure is not written in sacred scripture for the church for all time to read about. You know, we sometimes just deal with God about that. And Peter's was so big that we are reading about it and learning from it a couple of thousand years later. So Peter loses sight of who he belongs to, who he is, the call that is upon his life. Let me remind us of what the scripture says. 1 Corinthians 12, 10, 12. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he may fall. All of us have the potential to fall. Here's the second thing about Peter that's important. That faith is safer and stronger when we follow close, not from a distance. So one, Peter, because he's following at a distance... He loses sight and he opens himself up to be more of a coward. Here's the second thing. This one's really important. He had not understand the teaching, understood the teaching of Jesus that Jesus had been given for, for about the last six months. That he was going to Jerusalem and all of this was going to take place. He had been told over and over again that this night would come. Now to his credit, he hasn't run away yet on this night. 
He's followed Jesus as he's led to the high priest's house. But if he had embraced all of the teaching that Jesus had been giving him, that I'm going to go to Jerusalem, men, this is what is going to happen. If he would have embraced the truth, he would have been better prepared for the moment, knowing, okay, he's been telling us this is coming. I'm seeing this unfold in front of me. This is important for us. Listen, church. We are seeing things today because over the last two years that we have not seen before, ever-increasing things. Chips in arms to give identification and to eventually, there's all kinds of stuff that's out there that we're, we're beginning to see how, not saying when, but how this stuff could come together. Can we not see now how there could eventually be a one-world government, a one-world economic system that the book of Revelation speaks about? So just like Peter, who had been taught for six months from Jesus himself, not from Pastor Doak Taylor, but from Jesus Christ, the Lord, King of the universe. Six months, this is going to happen. It's unfolding in front of his eyes, and he can't see it. So what's the counsel for us here? We must be the kind of people who are in the Word, steeped into the Word, know the Word, so that as things begin to happen and we see certain circumstances, not just in regard to revelation, but just life, The scripture has great application to our lives. And as we see things unfold, we know this. Okay, God's word speaks about this. This is how I apply the word to this situation. Why should Christians take a stand against abortion? Because the Bible over and over again gives affirmation that man is not the creator of things. God is the creator. And what God creates, we honor, we treasure, we hold in great, great esteem. So that's why we, as believers all over the world and in our country, one of the great things is that there's a remnant that loves the truth of Scripture and speaks against the anti-God things that are happening in our culture. But the only way to know what the truth is is to know the truth. That allows us to know what the lies are. And so Peter has had a great opportunity for six months to learn. Now it's unfolding right there in the middle of his presence. And he hasn't learned. As a matter of fact, I just would say this, Peter's problem is, as ours is, is we want God to work in line with our expectations We don't want to adjust in line with what God has said, which is the expectation for our lives. He didn't want Christ to go to the cross. Christ needed to go to the cross. There would be no salvation. And so, again, we adjust to what the truth says. And ultimately, we've got to be careful that we do not get in the way of God's purpose when we set our minds on our interests or man's interests over the Lord's. Third thing about Peter, it's important. We must come to grips with our weakness. Anybody weak in the room this morning? Can, or can you be weak? We must know that every moment of the day we need Jesus. In our strongest moments, we need him. Because if we're not, our, our strength becomes a strength moment. We, we become prideful. We, or we can 
go there. And then our weakest moments, we desperately need Jesus. So we need Jesus in our lowest moment. We need him in our middle moments. We need him in our highest moments that he gets the glory for everything. We must come to grips with our weakness. It's an interesting conversation Jesus has with Peter that Luke records for us. John doesn't record it for us. Matthew doesn't. Neither does Mark. Here's what Luke tells us that Jesus said to Peter on this night. And I want you to listen to these words. This is, this is heavy. Simon, Simon, behold. Listen to this. Satan has demanded me to have you. He's demanded to have you. And he wants to, Jesus says, that he might sift you like wheat. In Asia, um, we were in villages last week. We drive by roads and they, they still sift wheat in some of these countries. Where they get this big round thing and they, they beat the wheat that separates the wheat from the chaff. And it's a painful process for the wheat, I guess if the wheat could talk, they would say, ouch. But if you've ever been sifted in life, it's painful. Why are we sifted? Well, when God sifts us, it's for the great glory, but for his great glory and for our great good. But I want you to notice, Satan demanded of Jesus that he could have Peter to sift him. Satan was after Jesus on this night. He's after Peter on this night. And we must come to grips with our weakness, that we are not unlike Peter. We can have a weak moment. It's okay to embrace weakness. Paul came to the place to understand that. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, here's what Paul says. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How is he strong? Because in those moments, he's trusting in the Lord. Peter's not doing this on this night. I think Peter eventually learned this. He did learn this. But faith, again, let me just say this and we'll move on to the last thing. Faith is safer and stronger when we follow near to Jesus. All right, here's the last thing this morning. is I want to talk about the distinguishing line. So we're back in John chapter 18. So the high priest questioned Jesus and his disciples about his teaching. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have, I have said nothing in secret. I've been open about everything. So why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me. I've been all over for three years teaching, teaching, teaching. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Let me, just briefly as we finish, remind you and I of how we live and stand in the culture in which we live in right now. We, just like Jesus, we speak openly. Listen, we speak openly to the truth of the Scripture. That's what Jesus practiced. He said, why are you asking me this? Listen, for three years I've been going to village to village. I've been in the temple. You've been there when I've taught. You've heard what I've said. So I spoke openly. And, I, and for us as God's people, we are those kind of people. Again, not to be harsh and rude. That, that is not a, not a good witness. But, but sometimes we speak the truth and the world may see it as harsh and weird and rude. It's not. It's just the truth. And if we love the world and we love broken people, then we speak 
the truth. And so Jesus says, listen, I have spoken openly of the truth to the world. And that must be our aim as well. He's letting the high priest know that he knows this, that that he has no interest. There was not one time in Scripture that we saw that Caiaphas ever came to Jesus and had a conversation with him. He's not really interested in having a conversation in this last moment with him as well. Well, as Jesus says this, an officer recognizes it, or he thinks that Jesus is being rude to the high priest. And so he hits Jesus because of this. And our culture right now is responding in the same way to Christ. Just a pounding and an attacking against God's people. And the attacks on the church, from the culture, are almost always from those who have no clue in regard to the Word of God. They don't understand it. They don't know it. But it doesn't mean that we don't stand there. We continue to stand there. And so Jesus says, listen, I spoke openly of the truth. This is what we do. Here's the second thing. That as we do that, we have confidence in what we can stand in is a foundation that lasts. And that's what Jesus says there. He says, why do you ask me? Just ask those who heard me teach. They will tell you what I said. And it will line up with who I am. And you'll know my perspective about things. Jesus knows that he only spoke the truth. He doesn't have to defend himself. The last thing is this. We should stand our ground in the midst of our culture, just like Jesus does here, and call our persecutors to examine themselves. And this is what he does here. Jesus answered him, the one who hit him. He said, if what I said is wrong, then you bear witness about the wrong. Take a look at it. Consider what's wrong about what I've said, what I've taught for three years. But if what I said is right, then why are you striking me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. He stands his ground and he calls the persecutors to examine themselves. So I want to finish with this, and we're going to sing a psalm. What are the lessons we can learn on this night? What do we learn from Jesus? What can help us? First thing is simply this, is that God's freedom is given to those who know the truth. If you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. Jesus is free on this night, though he is bound physically, because he knows the truth, that that the sovereign hand of the Father is guiding all of this. And so God's freedom is given to those who know the truth. The truth sets them free. Jesus is free. You and I can be free. Here, secondly, the world system will never embrace truth. It will fight against the truth. It's just the way of the world. The world system will not embrace the truth. It will have leaders that don't embrace the truth and will say certain things. Thirdly, Here's another lesson we can take from this. Are you all ready? Are you ready for this one? Christ's life went the way of the cross, so must our life go the way of the cross. Now, this is what's taught in our culture far too often. Come to Jesus, things are going to be good, smooth, comfort, money, good bank account, good this, good that. We are called to die to self. 
You don't hear that a whole lot today. But I just remind us, His life was by the way of death to the cross. We are, Jesus said, to take up our cross daily. Deny ourselves. Don't buy the Western church lie that Jesus' death does not call us to die to ourselves. Fourthly, be really, really careful to not be like, like Peter where we warm ourselves by the fires of the world. So he's gathered around the fire warming himself. It's a cold night that night and he's gathered around people and, and he gives in. The world offers trinkets. Jesus offers treasure. The world offers trinkets. Jesus offers treasure. And here's Peter warming himself, and we have to be careful because we are weak without the Lord. So be careful who we surround ourselves with that we are warming our lives up with. We need to be by God's people and stay close to Jesus. Here's the last thing. The distinguishing line in our culture today is those who embrace the words of Jesus and those who do not embrace the words of Jesus. That's the distinguishing line, and that's what this last part was about. Where are we going to stand? What's going to be our confession? There is zero indication that any of the religious leaders took one of the scrolls of the Old Testament and went and sat down with Jesus and said, can you tell me about what you think Malachi is saying here? What Moses is talking about, that there's one who's going to come after him? Not one single religious leader outside of what we know of Nicodemus coming in John 3 and Joseph of Arimathea attached himself to Jesus at the end. Caiaphas never did. So the principle is this. Students, you're growing up in a really tough culture. It's changed a lot since I was a handsome senior in high school in 1984. But I want you to know this, students, that though the culture has changed dramatically in its affirmation of things, God has not. And you're not living in a day that was more difficult than first century Christianity under King ne Emperor Nero. And you are equipped with the truth of God to stand, boys and girls that are in the room. As an eight-year-old, as a ten-year-old, however old you are, you ought to be a passionate pursuer of Jesus today at your age. Don't wait till you get older. Know Him now. Know the truth now so that you're ready to distinguish between the lies. All of us in the room this morning, we are going to take a stand somewhere. And it will be our view of things or God's view of things. And it must be God's view of things. The distinguishing line is the Scripture. When we get to John chapter 19 and Pilate and Jesus are having this conversation where Pilate asks a question, what is truth? And Jesus said, I came for truth. And, we, and, 
And so the distinguishing line is, is our embracing of Jesus' words. We must be people who pursue Jesus in the text. And we stand on the principles that we there. If, the, if a, a view or a philosophy is not here, we don't stand there. Maybe, maybe it's a positive principle, but it may not be a biblical principle. And we are to be people of the book. That's what our lives are to be marked by. So though all this stuff is happening to Jesus, are there not great lessons to learn about life in John 18? All right, let's pray together.